Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 9, 2 Kings chapter 9. As we work through this passage, we're going to do a couple weeks of house cleaning here. And it's someone we've been excited to get rid of for a while, but I'm not going to tell you who it is just yet. But as we walk through this passage this morning, we'll see this central truth, that the reign of tyrants always yields to the inescapable justice of Jesus the King. The reign of tyrants always yields to the inescapable justice of Jesus the King. So if you have a copy of God's Word there, I encourage you to take it now. If not, you can take one of the pew Bibles there in front of you, and we're going to read together 2 Kings 9, verses 1 through 13. 2 Kings 9, verse 1. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi. And go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil, pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee, do not linger. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, To which of us all? And he said, To you, O commander. So he arose and went into the house. And the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of, of the Lord, over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I might avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish. And I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. And the dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. When Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, You know the fellow in his talk. And they said, That's not true. Tell us now. And he said, Thus and sp so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment <clears throat> and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Well, it's been several years ago now, each summer, normally near the beginning of the summer, my extended family kind of gathers together. We normally try to get together at the beach. As many of you know, I have a number of siblings. There are nine of us total, and so we're kind of spread all out, and we try to get together. You know, mom likes to get everyone together. Well, several years ago, this normally kind of highlight event was not a highlight, and we call it the year of the plague because this particular year, a stomach bug visited one of us and then all of us, or most of us, and I can remember people just camped out in various couches or beds, and it's kind of a, a pain, you know. It's like you're all there together. No one wants to move. You know, half of you are invalids, and the other half are trying to stay away or take care of the invalids without getting sick themselves. Well, at the end of that week, I can tell you none of us wanted to be anywhere near that condominium. In fact, I wouldn't recommend anyone go there for several months until it had been thoroughly fumigated, perhaps burned, gutted from the inside out, sprayed with Lysol, and reconstructed. Because there are moments when you know it is time to clean house. And we've arrived at that day in the house of Ahab. 
Ahab was a king in Israel, but unlike the other kings, God tells us in his word that he took the evils that the kings lived out to a whole new level. In fact, 1 Kings 16 tells us that Ahab did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So there were a lot of bad kings, but Ahab is the worst. And it's time. It's time to purge the evil of Ahab and his family from Israel. He's actually been dead for some time. But his evil lives on. And the Lord uses now his prophet Elisha to complete a project begun by Elijah many years before, all the way back in 1 Kings 19. To where the Lord spoke to Elijah and said, Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. So that anointing begun by Elijah will now be completed by Elisha and one of his disciples, the son of the prophet. And this first section we just read tells us about the plan. Jehu is going to be officially anointed. The first step in ensuring the appointment of this new king is anointing him. So Elisha calls one of his protégés, a son of the prophets, and sends him to Ramoth Gilead here on the right side of this map. Israel has been at war for some time with Syria. First with King Ben-Hadad for a number of years and now with his successor, King Hazael. The Lord commanded Elijah to anoint three people in 1 Kings 19. Hazael over Syria, Jehu over Israel, and Elisha as the prophet of the Lord. So there's a recipe created back in 1 Kings 19, and it's just now coming out of the oven. We're taking all of the ingredients from 1 Kings 19. They've been prepared, they've been mixed together, they've been thrown in the pot, and now it's about to come out. Jehu is one of King Jehoram, the king of Israel, one of his generals. He's out at this outpost in Ramoth Gilead. You can see it was there between Israel and Syria. Elisha's instructions are clear in verse 3. Go anoint Jehu, then open the door, flee, don't linger. In other words, you don't, be around, you don't want to be around, you don't know what's going to happen next. So with the plan hatched by Elisha, the servant executes the plan. He walks in to this meeting of generals with a message for one of them. So in verse 5, Jehu says, which commander? And the servant replies, for you. They go inside, and the young prophet anoints Jehu king. Now, there are times where things like this happen in Scripture, and we're like, that's weird. I wonder what God meant by that. This isn't one of those times. Because God tells us exactly what he's doing in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. The prophet's job is done. He opens the door and flees. But when Jehu comes out from his little side meeting, the other generals naturally ask, what's up? And he tries to shrug it off at first. Oh, you know that guy and his crazy talk. But that doesn't pass. So in verse 12, he gets right to it. Thus he said to me, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. And what happens next is actually pretty shocking. Verse 13, in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. 
I mean, these guys are all powerful dudes, and yet they fall all over themselves to kneel before the new king. It seems to me that these powerful men who also could have vied for the throne might have immediately sprung into fighting. Who gives you the right to be king? There's nothing that tells us that Jehu is a better fighter or a better general or stands taller than everybody else. So why Jehu? Why doesn't everyone else fight about it? Well, it's right there in front of us. Verse 3, thus says the Lord. Verse 6, thus says the Lord. Verse 12, thus says the Lord. The word of the Lord is bringing this about. And if you're like me, it's easy to trust the Lord when he's bringing us success. But in 2 Kings 9, the word of the Lord isn't bringing success to God's people so much as he's bringing justice to God's enemies. And yet God is at work through his word. I Many attacks may come. The people of God may falter. Leaders may fail. Churches may struggle. Yet God is bringing about his purposes according to his word. And not one word of God's promises will fail. Not one enemy will go unpunished. Now, when we're mistreated, when we feel like we're getting a raw deal, what's our tendency? What do we go to? Well, we try to get a little back for ourselves, don't we? We try to make up the difference. Our boss withholds a bonus that we feel like we rightly deserve. A little upset the next week, and we don't quite give 100%. Our parents, you know, our parents, they're unjust in the way they live out their rules and restrictions, so we get a little of our own back by doing something behind their back when they can't see. A client walks out angry and refuses to pay. We find ourselves impatient with the next customer that's hard to deal with. But what does the Lord say? When something happens that seems unequal, that seems unjust, what does the Lord say? Romans 12, 19, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You see, if you've been unjustly treated, falsely accused, or mistreated, you don't have to worry about it. God's got it. The judge of all the earth will do what's right. And knowing this, what does knowing this do for us? It changes our hearts. It transforms us from needing to justify ourselves, to get back what's ours, to resting in the sovereignty of God, to resting in the goodness of God, to resting in the power of the Heavenly Father who looks over all his children and trusts in his care for us. We don't have to get our own. And it not only keeps us from multiplying someone else's sin with more sin, it gives us the fruit of peace in our lives. Because we can trust in God's goodness, in God's wisdom to work it all out. Thus says the Lord. Ahab and his family are really bad people. But God is bringing his purposes to pass, 
and we can trust him. So this brings us from house cleaning plan to house cleaning executed. No pun intended. Jehu's about to get after it. Let's pick up now in verse 14. Thus, Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now, Joram, with all Israel, had been on guard at Ramoth-Gilead against Hazael, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. So Jehu said, If this is your decision, let no one slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. Then Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there. And Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to visit Joram. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company. And Joram said, Take a horseman and send to meet them, and let him say, Is it peace? So a man on horseback went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And the watchman reported, saying, The messenger reached them, but he's not coming back. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus says the king, Thus the king has said, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. Again the watchman reported, He reached them, but he's not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Joram of Israel has been at war with Syria, and as he's been at war, he was wounded in battle. Therefore, he's gone from Ramoth-Gilead, kind of out on the frontier, closer to Syria, back into Israel, to Jezreel, where he's recuperating from his wounds. Jehu wants to make sure word of his anointing doesn't get out. So he tells all the other generals, surround the city, don't let anyone out to warn Joram back in Israel. And then to escalate matters a little bit, Joram isn't the only king at Jezreel. Ahaziah, the king of Judah, is with him. Now, Remember what Jehu's commission from the prophet is. Verse 8, the whole house of Ahab shall perish. Well, what then are Joram's and Ahaziah's connections with Ahab? Well, Joram's pretty easy. He's the king of Israel. He's the son of Ahab. Ahab's his dad. So that one's pretty easy. Ahaziah, though, you may or may not remember, is actually Ahab's grandson, because his mother, Athaliah, was Ahab's daughter, according to 2 Kings 8. So at this point, Ahab's son and grandson sit on the throne in both Israel and Judah. This is implications for both nations. Well, as Jehu approaches Jezreel, the watchman in the tower sees him coming. Joram sends first one messenger and then a second saying, is it peace? Both times, Jehu responds the same way, noted for his nerve, hey, get in line, hop in. And apparently he has quite a reputation for chariot driving. Verse 20, his driving is like Jehu, for he drives furiously. Some of you drove that way on the way to church this morning to meet mom. Well, let's pick up now in verse 21. Joram said, make ready. And they made ready his chariot. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out, each in his chariot, and went to meet Jehu, and met him at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? He answered, What peace can there be 
so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many. Then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery, O Ahaziah! And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders, so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, Take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now, therefore, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled in the direction of Bethagen. And Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is by Iblaam. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. His servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah began to reign over Judah. Well, now Joram and Ahaziah go out to meet Jehu. And this whole passage is just dripping with irony. Look again at the end of verse 21. Where do they meet him? At the property of whom? Naboth. Naboth the Jezreelite. Do you remember Naboth? That's where this all started, 1 Kings 21. We see Ahab pouting. Now, that's not a surprise because Ahab pouts all the time. But in this case, he's pouting because he can't have Naboth's vineyard and he wants it. Jezebel says, no problem, honey. I'll take care of it. She tells him she'll get the field. Now, 2 Kings 9 tells us something we didn't know in 1 Kings 21. Not only did Jezebel have Naboth killed, she remembers she had this feast. She has him falsely accused of cursing God and the king, and they rise up and they kill him, a bunch of worthless fellows. But not only did she kill Naboth, 2 Kings 9 says she killed Naboth's sons. Verse 26, I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord. Well, inasmuch as if Naboth dies, where does the land go? It goes to his sons. So Jezebel not only makes sure she takes care of dad, she takes care of the sons too. So now we know the crime was even worse than we knew before. Well, between Jehu's furious driving and Joram's anxiety about finding out what's going on, the two kings rush out to meet the general in the field. And once again, Joram asks the same question. Verse 22, is it peace? And Jehu isn't cagey any longer. He answers, what peace can there be? So long as the whorings and sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many. And now Joram knows the gig is up, crying out in verse 23, treachery! I mean, speaking of irony, how ironic is this? I mean, if there's any family that knows about treachery, it's Joram's family, it's Ahab's family. Ahab's son who profited from this field, this very field, stolen by lies, deceit, and murder, cries out treachery. I mean, Naboth and his dead sons, they know about treachery. Isn't it crazy how evil people can twist the truth as if they're the victims of the crimes they're committing? Bullies, the first to cry victim. Cheaters, the first to cry cheater. Treachery indeed. Joram knows treachery. Well, as Joram turns to flee, 
Jehu takes his bow. And the Hebrew term is a technical term for archery. He literally fills his hand with a bow. In other words, he's not taking any chances. He stretches it back with his full mind and he lets the arrow go and it pierces Joram to his heart. Ahab's son is dead. What do you do with a guy like Joram? Where should you throw him to rot? Verse 25, take him up. Threw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. Joram meets his end at the sight of Ahab's and Jezebel's great injustice. In 1 Kings 24, Elijah had said, Anyone of Ahab's house who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. So the birds, the vultures, will soon rip this king's dead body to shreds. Well, while Jehu is busy taking care of Joram, Ahaziah knows this is not a good place to be. I'm out of here. So he hits the road. Jehu has his shoulders, soldiers pursue and shoot Ahaziah. He'll be taken back and buried in Jerusalem. So why? Why does all of this happen? Look again at the end of verse 26. This happens in accordance with the word of the Lord. God is bringing his word to pass. God's word is utterly, totally, absolutely reliable. As Joshua twenty two forty five says, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Not one word had failed. God always fulfills his promises in his time and in his way. If you've been a parent for any time, perhaps you've had this experience making a promise to your children that you were unaware that you were making. They ask you a question, maybe you're fixing dinner or doing something a little bit distracted, and you say, sure. And then later on, you find out you've committed yourself to something you were completely unaware that you were committing to. And while you don't intend to break a promise, you find yourself unable to fulfill what you had already committed to. I can remember this feeling as a kid with my dad having a conversation, and to me it was very clear that he had committed to do something, and it wasn't so clear to him. I'm sure my own children have had very similar experiences. But God never makes and forgets a promise. God isn't like us. We see God's faithfulness to his word over and over and over again. I mean, how long does this promise, this particular promise about Ahab's family take? Just a generation or two? By our reckoning, that's quite a while to us. 30 years, 40 years. But in the way we read our Bible, in the way we read history, it's nothing. You know, it's like one chapter into the next. I mean, to us, it's nothing. And it's nothing compared to the thousands of years God's people waited for the fulfillment of Genesis 3, verse 15. The seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head, and the serpent shall bruise his heel. We call this the first gospel. It's the first note of good news. And it was thousands of years before Jesus came. Well, in the midst of this judgment on God en God's enemies, we have a beautiful picture of God's compassion for his children. It's, it's easy to miss because there's a lot of bad stuff happening to enemies here. But look again at verse 26. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons declares the Lord. God saw. Do you remember Exodus 3? Do you remember when the people of Israel had suffered in slavery in Egypt for 400 years? 
Exodus 3, verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen. I see the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them. Or Psalm 10, The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He will never see it. But the psalm goes on to say in verse 14, but you do see. God sees. You have been the helper of the fatherless. The Lord is king forever and ever. Or Psalm 118, verse 6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? God sees, God acts, God protects. Brothers and sisters, the Lord saw the affliction of his people in Egypt. The Lord saw the unjust death of Naboth, and he sees your affliction too. That God, his character, has never changed and will always be the same. Within God's character, there's not even a shadow due to change, not a shadow of turning. He's full of compassion and care for his children. As Psalm 103 tells us, he knows what we're like. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And what is dust good for? Not a lot. But what does God look at us and see? He sees us with compassion as the best father seeing a child weak and helpless. He sees, he knows, he acts. You can rest in the good care of your heavenly father. Well, the deaths of Joram and Ahaziah remind us that there's one notorious enemy surviving, Jezebel. Yes, somehow, though Ahab is dead, Jezebel is still around. It's time to escalate this house cleaning. Let's pick up now in verse 30. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. She painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank. And he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. Now, verse 30 is weird. Jezebel is an old woman. But now she paints her eyes. She adorns her head and looks out the window. Some commentators theorize that she's dressing as a prostitute in some sort of sadistic attempt to allure Jehu. Well, this is certainly possible given Jezebel's character, 
I think it's more likely that she's heard what's happened to the king. She knows that she's next. So she dresses as a queen to look and die as a queen. I mean, not only is the thought that she's trying to seduce Jehu a little bit weird and gross, it doesn't fit what she says. Verse 31, is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? She begins with the same question we've seen a couple times before. Is it peace? But she knows the answer because she immediately resorts to calling in names. Zimri, murderer of your master. Now, you may or may not remember Zimri, but he's a servant in 1 Kings 16. He conspires against the current king of Israel, Elah. He murders the king and attempts to take over the kingdom. Well, Jezebel's grandfather, Omri, defeats Zimri, became king. Omri came to power, commander of the Israelite army, and Jehu came to power the same way. So Jezebel's not making peace. She's hurling accusations. So in verse 32, Jehu doesn't even waste time answering her. He says, who's on my side? Who? And apparently it's not hard to find people who don't like Jezebel because multiple eunuchs show up to volunteer and they throw her down. Now her death is rather gruesome. Blood spatters the wall and the horses. And Jehu's not worried about it. He's traveled a long way. He's no doubt hungry. So he goes inside and eats and drinks. And after he's full... He sends some people out to check on Jezebel. Jezebel, the insulter, is now called this cursed woman, but she's also a king's daughter. They send a burial detail. But after taking such care to present herself at all her vanity and all her beauty, there's almost nothing left. Verse 35, when they went to bury her, they found no more than the skull of the feet and the palms of her hands. This isn't a surprise either. Verse 36, when they came back and told Jehu, he said, This is the word of the Lord which he spoke by his servant Elijah. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, so that no one can say, This is Jezebel. No one can recognize her. She's in great pains to be seen in all her glory, and now no one can see who she is. This is exactly what God said would happen. We first met Jezebel in 1 Kings 16 at the very beginning of this series. She has hovered and plotted and schemed the entire time. But she's done now. She's met her end. The fate of the wicked is sure. She appears 21 times between 1 Kings 16 and 2 Kings 9. But now she disappears. Until Revelation chapter 2. And then we meet Jezebel again, Revelation 2, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality to eat food sacrificed to idols. So he says to the church, hold fast what you have until I come. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jezebel gets an eternal memorial, but it's a memorial to her evil. Her deeds are remembered in the very last book of our Bibles. And God is holding then the New Testament church responsible 
for this spirit of Jezebel that lives on. And how does the church participate in her sin? She who no longer lives, they tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants. What's the cure? Hold fast what you have until I come. In other words, the sins of Jezebel didn't die when Jezebel died. Jezebel died, but her sins survived. The temptation to be drawn away after false teaching or sexual immorality lives on. So what's the cure? The cure is to hold fast to what we have received from God in the gospel. I mean, what a woman to remember on Mother's Day. What a mother. We don't fight the sin of Jezebel by determining we don't want to be like Jezebel. She's infamous for a reason. She descends the depths that no one else will descend to. And though, thankfully, most of us don't go where Jezebel went, the seeds of her greed, the seeds of her scheming are in all of us. We all want our own way. We want to be rich. We want to be powerful. What do we want? We want more. When do we want it? We want it now. But the gospel rescues us for pursuing more for the sake of more. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't ultimately about what you want, but about who you want. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a person. It's Jesus. It's not our gospel. It belongs to him. It is from him. It is to him. (coughs) Excuse me. It is to him. It is for him. All things are through him. God created this world good, but our first father and mother couldn't make it to their first kid before they sinned and fell and broke the goodness of God's good creation. And every daughter, every son born since that day has been born in sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this problem can't be solved by the sinner himself. It can only be solved by a righteous one. And so God tells us that God sent his son in love to die for our sin. Not for his, but for ours, so that through him we might have life. To receive the gospel is to receive Christ, to live in Christ. And you can't live in Christ and live in sin. To live in Christ means our way of life changes. So now we live and move and breathe in Christ. In the sphere, which is Christ, part of the body of Christ. So, believers don't break covenant in their marriage. Not because that's not what we do, but because we live in Christ. Believers don't cheat in business. Not because it doesn't make sense to cheat in business, but because we live in Christ. Believers gather with the body of Christ because we live in Christ, together. But some of us here this morning haven't received Christ, aren't living in Christ, where the reality of Christ has changed your life, the very way you think and conceive of living. And if you haven't received Christ today, your earthly fate may not be like Jezebel's. 
But the fate of all God's enemies is the same. They all receive justice. They all receive guilty. And the only way to receive anything different, the only way to receive not only not guilty, but righteous, is to place your faith in Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone. Would you turn from your sin? Would you turn from your self-reliance? Would you turn from that stubborn pride that says no one tells me what to do and yield to the king of the universe? Because the injustice of tyrants always yields to the eternal justice of Jesus the king. Would you trust him? You see, the line of Jezebel lives on in all who persist in sin and rebellion against our creator. Revelation 2, she's there. But if you know the rest of the book of Revelation, she doesn't get the last word. She's a blip. She is a blip on the page of history. From Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David to Jesus' first coming to Jesus' second coming, God is bringing his redemptive story to pass. You see, Revelation 12 tells us of another mother. And this mother gives birth to a son who comes and crushes the dragon. Then Revelation 21 paints a glorious picture of another woman. This woman is the heavenly Jerusalem prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Jezebel doesn't get the final word. And what does this new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, bring? Revelation 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Jezebel, she brings nothing but pain and heartache. When Christ comes to claim his bride, there will be no more pain, no more death, no more heartache. God's plan of redemption will be complete. And every time we encounter injustice, every time we encounter pain, death, heartache, grief, we look forward to that day. The day that Jesus says is coming soon. Behold, he goes on, I am coming soon. I am the Alpha and the Omega the first and the last, the beginning and the end, and we say, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then we'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now. God, we thank you that Jesus Christ is coming back.
that he will right every wrong. He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death. Lord, I pray for those here who don't know Christ by faith, that they would turn from their sin and trust in him. And Lord, I pray for us as your children to look for and long for that day. The day we will see him and be like him because we will see him as he is. And I pray this in Jesus' name.